There's two Bible readings today. Uh, the first is Genesis 1, starting at verse 24 on page 2. And you can also follow along on the screen. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. The second reading is from 2 Thessalonians uh, 3, starting at verse 6, and it's on page 1191. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy, they are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order, that, in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer.
It does not matter, friends, uh, whether you're a tradie and you get your hands dirty at work, or whether you're driving a desk, you know, living the corporate dream, or whether you're making a home. We Australians, we have a complicated relationship with work. Some of us love our jobs. And if we're honest or if we listen to those around us, we do probably spend a little bit too much time at work and can feel just a tad guilty for doing that. Others of us see work really as a necessary evil. You know, we live for the weekend. Monday is spent recounting what happened on the weekend. Tuesday to Friday are spent planning the next one. Nationally, we're actually involved in a conversation at the moment about work-life balance about family-friendly workplaces. We're having the conversation because we know that there is more to life than work. But with so many competing pressures, we're struggling to get the balance right. Those of us who have kids, we know how much time and effort we spend into thinking about which school we're going to send them to. And then we worry about what they're doing at school And then we agonise about how we can help them get into something after school that will help them to get a decent job because we actually want them to be happy. We want them to thrive. And yet, while we're busy thinking about their futures, we're often dreaming about our own, of stopping work, of early retirement, of finally being able to enjoy all that we've worked so hard for. There are periods in our life, aren't there, when it feels like all we do is work, work, work and work. We're working so hard and yet hardly seeming to make any progress at all. Some of us, yeah, we just hate our jobs. You've got to read the cartoon. Uh, You can't wait to get out the door. Uh, Thank you for laughing. Uh, Then there are those who who are doing exactly the same job that I am, that I hate, and somehow they just love it. And then there are those amongst us who would kill just to have a job, any job. After so many rejections, their emotions are frayed, their their confidence has evaporated, their self-esteem is well and truly in a hole work. As Australians, we are somewhat confused about it. The good news is God isn't. And he's got some fairly groundbreaking things to say about our relationship with work and our struggles with it. How about we ask God to help us to understand his word this morning as we look at it. Because see, we're in the middle of a series looking at the very first chapters of the Bible. And today we're going to be thinking about work. So why don't we pray, ask him to speak to us and shape us into his image. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and our loving Heavenly Father, as we look at your work together this morning, we do pray that you would shape us into the image that you have created us to be. Help us to be just like Jesus, to think like you do about work and to work for your kingdom with joy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's an outline of where we're going on the screen. It'll keep popping up as we go. Head to, in your Bibles, to Genesis chapter 1. And let's pick it up where Paul left us last week. Let's have a bit of a think about work in the beginning. The first thing I want us to notice is that, well, it's what we saw last week in verse 26. 
There we read, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. We're created in God's image. Did you see the very next words in verse 26? We're created in God's image so that, so that we could rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the livestock and over all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. We see it again in verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, etc. As God's image bearers, our role is to rule over creation, over the whole of creation. We're to do it as God's agents, as those who bear his image. That is, our role is to rule creation as God would have us rule it in his place, doing it his way. He's made us like him so that we would rule like him. Now, let's be very clear. Genesis 1 should never and never ever can be used to validate writing a blank check to exploit this world. We're not given a free hand by God to simply take whatever we want from creation. We're not given carte blanche to clear fell huge tracts of land so that we can enrich ourselves. Adam's job was very clear. And in chapter 2, verse 15, we get a glimpse of what that rule looks like. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. Why? Notice, to work it and take care of it. Just let that sink in for a moment. This means that God placed Adam in the garden to work. Work is part of what it means to be his image bearer. You and I were created by God to work. Working is part of what makes us human. God worked by creating the world in six days. Adam was to work the garden. And I take it that doesn't mean that what he did, his work wasn't to declare the whole of Eden a a national park. He didn't say Eden ought to be left in its natural pristine, untouched by human hands state. No, no, no. On the contrary, he was commanded by God to work the garden. That is, he was to make the garden productive. And verse 16, he was given almost all of the fruit of the garden, the bounty of his work, as food. Adam was commanded to work the garden His action of working the garden inevitably means that he must have brought change to the garden. But notice again, verse 15, that change involved care. You see, like Adam, we bear God's image. Like Adam, we're to work. Like Adam, we are to work exercising God's rule as his image bearers, working the planet, taking care of the planet. Now, I don't know how you feel about climate change. Let me tell you, I don't know who's telling the truth and who's full of spin and lies. But I do know this. Over the past 200 years especially, as a race and as individuals, we have certainly worked the world. But I don't think we've done it with godly or sufficient care. As image bearers, our work has not borne God's image. Our work has not been done with his care. Exploitation of natural resources has been the the norm. 
pollution and degradation have been the marks that we've left. Our grandchildren will not grow up in a world that is better than the one that we grew up in. Our grandchildren will bear the cost of previous generations' lack of care. Think about the implications of that with me for a moment. It's pretty clear, I think, for each one of us. As image bearers, as those who bear not only the image of our Creator, but also bear the image of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as bearers of His image, we should be at the forefront of action amongst our race in seeing that God's world is cared for as he intended. I think it's really quite inappropriate to leave thinking about the environment up to the greens. Followers of Jesus should be at the forefront of it. It's inconsistent to be image bearers and be indifferent to the impact that we as a community are having on the world in which we live. So let me ask you to do one thing today. It's pretty simple. Solve the environmental crisis. And just just solve it just like that. Can you do that for me? It's a bit hard, isn't it? Let me ask you to do actually one simple thing. It's simple, but it's important. What I want you to do today is in the car on the way home or over lunch, I want you to have a conversation with those that you live with. I want you to have a conversation with those that you live with and I want you to ask yourselves one thing. Ask yourselves, what is one thing that we as a household can do immediately that can reduce the negative impact that we're having on the planet? That is, ask, what is just one step that we can take. Not all the way, but just one step that we can take. And among us this morning, there are going to be some of you who have been greenies for years. So I'm not going to ask you to put up your hands. But if that's you, ask yourself, what else can you do? For others, you've never really thought about it. Right? I won't know. I was going to say you drive big V8s and I won't go there. Right? You've never really thought about it. Right? If that's you... Ask not, how do I become a greenie overnight? That's much too big to contemplate. Rather, start with something small and ask, what small step can I take? You might want to ask, what can I reuse? What can I recycle? What can I reduce? You might want to ask, should I change the way that we heat or cool the house? It doesn't need to be quite as cool in summer. It doesn't need to be quite as warm in winter. I could put on some extra layers rather than putting on the AC. If it's time to replace the car, is it, is it time to consider getting something with a significantly smaller footprint? The key is for each one of us is to take one extra step and to take that step out of a conviction from God's word that we are to care for his planet as his image bearers. The key idea is just to start with one step and having taken one step, be a devil, take another and another, and another, deliberately, intentionally, as a response to our God-given responsibility to care for God's world his way. Just in the second point, the last thing I want us to notice about work in the beginning is that it was very good. Remember chapter 1, verse 31? 
when God saw all that he'd made, and that includes mankind as workers, he said it was very good. Work is very good. You and I, we actually know it in our bones, don't we? We know deep in our hearts that that feeling of doing a hard day's work and looking back at what we've achieved. We know the joy. We know that feeling of rich satisfaction. We know that deep-seated pleasure of a job well done. So the question is, why are moments like that so fleeting? Why are there so often the promise of work being good, but my daily report to my wife when I get home and she says, how was your day? I tell her about how tough it was. Why are the great times at work few and far between? The answer is, well, as we explored point three, what we're going to see is that sin changed everything. Sin changed work. When Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and God responded to that, our lives were changed, our work lives were changed irrevocably. In the coming weeks, we're going to have a look at rest and we're going to have a look at Adam and Eve and the sin in detail. This morning, I just want us to focus on God's punishment of Adam and the implications for our work. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 17. To Adam, God said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Now, gentlemen, just a quick word, lads. Uh, It's very important to notice that God is not saying that it is sinful to listen to your wives. Okay, just no, 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 no. It's very wise to listen to your wives. The problem in Adam's case was that he listened to Eve rather than listening to God. That's a problem. He says, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. She said, eat. I said, don't eat. Oh, and Adam, you know what? I'm God. And as important as Eve is, I'm your creator and I call the shots, not her. So because you listen to your wife and not me, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat from it all the days of your life. Work from that point on for Adam is going to be painful and difficult always. Not only that, verse 18, it will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. Adam, work is going to be frustrating for you. From this point on, thorns and thistles, irritants, will be constant reminder that you, Adam, messed up. And then there's the sweat. Verse 19, by the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your food. Work is going to be hard, backbreakingly hard, physically demanding. Just so you can fill your belly, you're going to have to sweat. And you're going to have to work, he says, verse 19, until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Until you die, it will never get any easier. Just think about that for a moment. From that point on, every time Adam went out to work, Every time, it was painful. Every time, he broke out in a sweat. Every time, he pulled up a weed. Every day that he went home exhausted, he was reminded by God that no one can take God on and expect to win. He was reminded that he was 
that Adam was actually an idiot to think that he could disregard God and think that there would be no consequences. Which brings us to today, to work in 2019 and point four. See, the reality is it's no different today and it's exactly the same for us. You and I, we're just as sinful. The curse of sin, it still stands. It reminds us every day that we can't expect to take God on and win. That rebellion against God always comes as a price. So every time work is painful, every time we break out in a sweat, every time there's a weed to pull up or the work is frustrating, every time you and I head home exhausted, it's a reminder from God that we're sinful, that there are consequences and that we must be reconciled with him. And as frustrating as work is, as in our face as that reminder from God is, I'd much prefer to have that reminder from God than not have it. Not have it and forget. Forget how serious my sin is and fail to respond to God as I should. Now, there are a number of ways that sinful people respond to work being hard, and one of them is to be a teenager, right? to stop working and to simply become lazy and let the weeds win. I love Proverbs. Proverbs introduces us to a character in the Bible called the sluggard. Isn't that just such a lovely word to say? The sluggard. Have a look at Proverbs 24 and pick it up at verse 30. The the writer of Proverbs says, I went past the field of a sluggard, past the vineyard of someone who has no sense. Thorns had come up everywhere. The ground was covered with weeds and the stone wall was in ruins. It was nowhere, nothing like David's vineyard at all. I applied my heart to what I observed and learned a lesson from what I saw. Here's the lesson. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, a little bit of teenage behaviour. You know how hard it is to get them out of bed? That's the picture here. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest and poverty will come upon you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. Work is always going to be tough. But laziness is not an option. It simply leads to poverty and ruin. As those who understand that we've been created in the image of God, as those who understand that the frustration of work is a a warning from God, we know that our work is just a normal part of life. And Paul makes it clear in the New Testament that we are to work as an expression of love for others so that we're actually not a burden on them. Look at the passage from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul writes, And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. What does that mean? Well, it means you should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. We love others by working hard and not being dependent upon them. Paul puts it really bluntly in the the passage we heard read second this morning in 2 Thessalonians 3. He says, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We weren't idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, labouring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. That's the principle. We did this 
Not because we don't have the right to such help. As apostles, they had the right to be supported. But in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is not willing to work shall not eat. Someone's not willing to work, there is no food. Teenagers, listen carefully. Mm. We knew this was really important when we raised our kids. Um, They needed to learn that contributing to the household was really important. Uh, They knew that working wasn't fun. We knew that it might be hard and frustrating, but we also knew biblically that it was really important for them to chip in. The problem was our sons were sluggards. They gold medal in sluggardry. Um, They were more than happy to benefit from our hard work, less than happy to lift a finger. Caroline, she's a very godly woman, my wife, she tried just about everything to get them to do chores. Anything you've tried, we tried it several times. And at one point, she just got so frustrated that at the top of her voice, she screamed to the boys, I'm never going to wash or iron any of your clothing ever again. And she hasn't to this day. Shortly after, she felt the guilt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I thought this was pure genius. She'd struck gold. So we actually struck to it. Our youngest was 14 at the time. He could use a washing machine and an iron. You know, his own bed sheets, all the rest of it, everything, right? Getting the washing out of their room was a constant source of frustration and stress for Caroline. So in one fell swoop, she lowered her own workload in the house significantly. She hit the boys where it hurt. And they will tell you today that it is one of the best things she ever did. Mind you, they did try just pulling everything out of the washing machine and putting it in the dryer. So she got the scissors and chopped the plug off that so they couldn't do that. Yeah, all sorted. Your kids, my kids, they're never going to find work easy. But one of our tasks as parents, particularly on Father's Day, is to help them understand that the frustration of work is actually God's gift to us. It's a constant reminder of our sin of the futility of rebelling against him, of our need for forgiveness. Being a sluggard is never an option for one of God's image bearers. And it's our responsibility as parents to help our kids understand this. Okay, all of this raises a real question for me, and it's this. If all work under God's curse is tough, can I actually enjoy my work? Is it possible to find satisfaction in my labour? Is it possible to get a job where I'm not actually going to be frustrated? Is there something that I can do about it? One of my most favourite passages in the Bible is Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Have a look at verse 18. The answer to our question is there and it's surprising. The writer says this, This is what I observe to be good, that it's appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labour under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. That's what life's all about, isn't it? That's the dream. Eat, drink, and enjoy your job. Yeah? Anybody not want to do that? Good, excellent, we've all voted, and it's decided. Notice what comes next, though. It's quite unexpected. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and to be happy in their toil, 
This is a gift from God. Just let that sink in. The ability to enjoy our wealth, our possessions, our job, to be happy in our work, it's a gift. And it's a gift from God. Look at what he says next. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. So wonderful is the gift that time just flies by as their hearts are filled, as they delight in their toil and the good things that it brings. But look at the next verse, because quite the opposite is true. He says, I've seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on mankind, and you know that this is true. God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honour, so that they lack nothing their hearts desire, but God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them, and strangers enjoy them instead. Because of the fall, because of our sin, because of God's curse, without God's gift, it is impossible, impossible to find joy and satisfaction in your work. You happy in your job at the moment? Because God's given you the gift. If you're not, it will not matter how many times you change jobs. It won't help. It won't matter how high up the corporate ladder you go. It will not help. Enjoyment of a job has absolutely nothing to do with the job itself. It has everything to do whether God gives us the ability to enjoy whatever job he places us in. And as Ecclesiastes makes clear, God gives the gift to some and he doesn't give it to others. And without his gift, you cannot enjoy your role. So the question is, who gets it? Flick to earlier in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes and pick it up at verse 24. There we read, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. Yeah, we agree with that. This too I see is, oh, from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? He doesn't just say it once, he says it times in this letter. Answer, no one can. So who gets the gift? Verse 26. To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. Pretty simply, he gives the gift to us, to those who love Jesus and trust his death to reconcile them to himself. In Jesus, through his death, we are able to please God because we are clothed in his righteousness. So if work is driving you nuts, you don't seem to be able to enjoy a day, don't make this mistake of thinking that changing jobs will do any good. Rather, firstly, be reconciled to God in Jesus, and then secondly, ask God to give you the gift. And his promise is that he will. The frustration of work is God's kindness to us, reminding us that we must be reconciled with him. His gift to those who heed the warning and be reconciled is the ability to enjoy our work. The final thing I want to say this morning is that the frustration, God's curse on work, 
points to the fact that in the future, things will be different. You see, when God cursed Adam in Genesis chapter 3, he promised that a day would come when he would lift the curse. And we see a picture of that in Revelation 21, where we read, look, when Christ returns, the dwelling place of God is now with the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. There's a day coming when the curse will be gone. I'm hanging out for it. I'm hanging out from a resurrection body. I'm hanging out for Jesus' return. But it's not just good. Verses 7 and 8 remind us that things will be good for us. But verse 8, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all lies, that's basically everyone who hasn't come to Jesus, they'll be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. There is nothing more horrific than hell. God will not let humanity continue to rebel against him forever. He has set a day when he will bring our rebellion to an end, which means until that day comes, you and I have another job. There is another labour that we are to engage in. And the New Testament calls us, calls it rather, the work of the Lord. Have a look at 1 Corinthians 15, 58 comes up on the screen, it'll tell us that this work is always worthwhile. Paul says, therefore, my dear brothers, therefore, in the the face of Jesus' resurrection, in the face of the coming resurrection, in the face that Jesus will restore all things, because Revelation 21 is happening, brothers and sisters, stand firm. Stand firm in the gospel. Let nothing move you. Always keep yourselves fully devoted or give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. It is never a waste. What does the work of the Lord look like? Well, what I want to do is I want to introduce you to, and we're going to watch a short video, a couple of Australians who are serving with us in Dubai. They've been in the country. Today is actually their one-year anniversary of arriving in the country. Uh, they arrived uh, and got a job. He's working in, in computer tech. Uh, Kerian's a mum. And in this little short video, they're going to talk to you not about, I didn't say tell the people at Mount Barker about the work of the Lord. I just said, tell us about some of the gospel opportunities you've got. Tell us about one person that you've been investing in uh, over the last 12 months. Have a listen while Simon and Kerian share their story. Since the woman was born, we've been doing simple things like meals, uh, looking 
amazed and she was so excited in a week where really it had been so terrible for her, it was a terrible week for her, but she just found such a joy um, in realising who it was who had been looking after her this whole time. And so to see her now jump into Bible study and be so eager to learn um, about the God who has saved her, um, it's been a real joy. Um, and she's got a lot of questions, she asks these questions all the time. Um, and that last week she gave her testimony in front of a hundred women um, and told them all about how um, Jesus had come and saved her in her back this time. And it was really, uh, so in such, it's been such an encouragement to me to see her conversation to grow. Friends, the work of the Lord just starts as we love our neighbours. Simon and Karen just helped out with a family next door and look for opportunities to talk with them about the gospel. Kerian helped out with a friend from school, started praying for her, walked with her during the dark days and had opportunities to talk with her about Jesus. The work of the Lord doesn't mean grabbing somebody by the throat and holding them down and punching them until they give their lives to Christ. It's, it's just chatting. It's sharing your life. It's serving and caring with your mouth open, talking about Jesus. We know how good it's going to be on the last day when the curse of work is finally gone. We also know how horrific it's going to be for those who don't heed work's warning and are reconciled with God. So will you not only look to God for the gift of enjoyment of your work now, but will you invest in the lives of others doing the work of the Lord so that they can join you now in receiving that gift of salvation and the ability to enjoy their work? but also the joy of eternal life in the life to come. Why don't you pray with me? Our gracious God and our loving Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that you're a God who works, that you've made us in your image, and you long for us to enjoy work. Father, we pray that you would give to us that gift, the gift of reconciliation with you and the gift of enjoyment. And Father, help us to so understand what you are bringing about with the end, with Jesus' return that we go about the work of the Lord, proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ to our friends and our neighbours so that they can join us in the kingdom, part of your family, blessed by you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.